Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and Kelly Barner here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Kelly, how are you doing? I am doing great, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are delighted to have you here on Supply Chain Now. We are also delighted to have a big show teed up and big guest here, top industry executive that I'd call quite a procurement guru, a supply chain guru, a global business guru. And he's done big things in that space. And as you and I both know, he's one heck of an interesting interview, right? <laughs> so uh, as our pre-show sessions have shown, try to say that three times fast. So Kelly, are you ready for this one? I am really looking forward to this one. Well, then with no further ado, let's welcome in our featured guest here today, Lynn DeCandia, recently retired Chief Procurement Officer of Johnson Johnson. Lynn, how you doing? I'm good, Scott. Hi, Kelly. How are you both? Hi, Lynn. We have really enjoyed. Uh, we had a, uh, I think we had a bonus extra long pre-show because we were enjoying <laughs> some of your stories, both <laughs> professionally and personally. So we're going to touch on some of that here today, but great to have you, Lynn. Yeah, so thank Kelly, you for giving me this opportunity to share with you. Oh, you bet. And Lynn, I even wear a non-plaid shirt for Kelly Barner, who reminds me <laughs> how many plaid shirts I got. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, Kelly. All right, so let's let's get to know Lynn better first. As I mentioned uh, to all of our listeners out there, we've really enjoyed uh, the pre-show conversations. So let's get to know Lynn a little bit there. So where did you grow up, Lynn? And you got to give us some anecdotes about your upbringing, including one topic we'll bring up here in just a second. All right, that sounds good. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm based in New Jersey, and I actually grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, which is directly across the Hudson River from Manhattan. Uh, and both of my parents were Italian immigrants. So uh, it was uh, a fun uh, youth uh, being a little bit different than everyone else and trying to assimilate and acclimate uh, to the American lifestyle. And Hoboken mm -hmm. was uh, famous when I was growing up because it's the uh, childhood home of Frank Sinatra. I actually grew up on the same street that Frank Sinatra grew up on. Wow. And I won't sing for you because none of that kind of rubbed <laughs> off on me. <laughs> hey, let me ask really quick. Kelly, are you a Frank Sinatra fan? We were, we hadn't broached the subject before. Oh, I am a big Sinatra fan. And I may not look it. I know I have the Boston Irish thing going. <laughs> but my mother's maiden name is Fabrizio. Ah, so perfect. Sunday night dinners, you open the bottle of wine, you've got meatballs cooking all day long. You got to put on Frank Sinatra, mix in a little bit of Rat Pack. Absolutely. Oh, man, I love that image you just painted. So, um, all right. So Lynn, uh, she, are, she broached food. We love yeah. talking food here at Supply Chain now. What is one food dish that was inseparable from your upbringing? Oh, eggplant parmigiana. I mean, for me, that is like the go-to meal. Um, and, you know, today everyone really knows a lot of these famous Italian meals. But for me, growing up, I was always different. Uh, you know, we'd be out playing on Friday nights. And in the normal American household, Friday night was pizza night, right? Uh, but for, for Roman Catholic Lenin family, even though it wasn't Lent, 
Um, every Friday night was fish soup night. So you can imagine what it was like seeing all my friends all excited about going home to have pizza. <laughs> and I had to trudge home to have fish soup. But, you know, now it's a delicacy, right? It's something I'm, you know, I look forward to having whenever I have a chance. And my mom still makes it. Uh, we'll leave it at that. I don't want to go any further about fish soup. <laughs> well, hey. One more question, and I, we want to bring up one of our favorite shows that uh, I think there's some there's some uh, common threads to. Uh, kind of kidding aside, you, you talked about your folks um, assimilating into you know, society and whatnot. And you kind of touched on that in a second, you know, second ago with the pizza night versus uh, fish soup night. But kidding aside, what um, what did you observe your parents do as they as they you know got used to um, you know living here in the states and of course your upbringing. Yeah, how did they how did they cross how did they um build those bridges yeah i think you know i was the oldest and i think as i started to go to school uh things changed i, I literally spoke italian before i spoke english wow. uh, which was great because when you learn another language as a young child it stays with you for life it's just an amazing experience but as i started to uh, go to school and and bring the english language into the house and complain about not having pizza on Friday night. Um, I, I started to see my parents becoming a little bit more comfortable adopting some of the American uh, experiences and standards. But it took them it took them quite a while to do that because and I see it all the time. I think one of the you know dimensions that I'm always interested in um, is really the challenges of being a first generation American. And I see so many young people uh, in our country today who still uh, do a great job of two things one you know growing up as a child but usually when you're in my case the oldest you're also help your parents you're responsible for helping them read things and understand you know how how to uh, go about uh, you know just living their lives uh, so it's a, a greater sense of responsibility Man, I really loved your answer there and thank you for uh, indulging us with that Kelly before I take a hard right turn your thoughts on what Lynn just shared? No, I, I 100% appreciate that. My dad was first generation American. Both of his parents were from Ireland. Um, and it wasn't too many generations back that my mom's family was adjusting from, from Italy. Then you had the, you know, the Ireland and the Italy coming together, which was an interesting mix. Uh, but it it is, it's it's a rich opportunity, but there is a lot of responsibility that comes with and an adjustment and being a kid sort of functioning as the go-between for your parents. Um, I'm, I'm sure it didn't always feel awesome at the time, but probably looking back, there were a lot of special moments that as you became an adult and your perspective broadened, I'm sure that you had some memories about things that you helped them transition into that you could really treasure. Mm -hmm. Well said. I think as it, as uh, the the United States continues to be a, a greater and greater melting pot, which is such a beautiful thing, I think we can all probably be more mindful of helping folks make that transition and being good friends and neighbors. And because you know that takes a lot of bravery, I can only imagine some of the stories that that but you both could share. And as we look back at uh, previous generations, some of the uh, the bigger struggles of the time that have become almost kind of like you assume it's just it takes place these days. So I appreciate y'all both sharing there. Um, okay. So on a much, much lighter note, uh, what we uncovered in the pre-show, Kelly, was that not only is Lynn a fellow big fan of one of the best TV shows of all time, The Sopranos, but Lynn, I believe um, you walked some of those paths where it was filmed and probably a lot more. Sure. Tell us tell us about your personal connections there. 
Sure. Well, you know, I think The Sopranos was just voted the number one television show of all time by uh, Rolling Stone, and rightly so, just a, a show ahead of its time. Um, but when I was working up in the northern part of New Jersey as chief supply officer for Roche Pharmaceuticals, I was right in that whole territory where they would film, and they filmed on location, uh, and they did a fantastic job of it. And they actually used some of the locals uh, for for some of the the background. I have a cousin who. I think he sat through uh, one of the funerals, if I'm not mistaken, of one of the Soprano family members. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there I am. There I am. See, no, not uh, yeah, <laughs> there exactly. I am. <laughs> um, well, I love that. And I'll tell you, uh, I, th I think we shared a pre-show, uh, Kelly. Uh, Amanda and I, my, uh, my significant other, we watched, just rewatched every show yeah. because we were looking for something that, you know, we could, we could put in the background that we enjoyed as we're knocking out work on our laptops, dueling laptops on the couches, if, if uh, y'all can uh, relate. You know, um, James Gandolfini, who was the star of the show, uh, I went to college with him. He was actually the uh, bartender at the, at the student pub. When I went to college, the drinking age was still under 21. Um, and he literally sat maybe a row or two away from me at the football games with his family. So I had a chance to to say hi to him a few times and uh, we lost him way too young, a very talented oh, yeah. man, just did a, a fantastic job and, and, a, and a, a true hero for, for many of, uh, of, uh, of the Rutgers graduates. You are so right there. And I knew that was, I knew uh, I couldn't quite remember that connection, but Kelly, how cool is that? And I think what I've heard, Len, he was an incredibly nice guy in real life. He was. He so really all of was. his success and his fame and his notoriety, he stayed sort of a um, a down-to-earth soul, somebody that you'd actually want to know. Yeah, very approachable and very involved with the university and helping the students and uh, very supportive. Again, it was just so sad to see him go so young, uh, but he's left an incredible legacy. Um, and I believe his son actually uh, starred in the most recent movie. And I remember when his son was like two or three years old on his shoulders at the football games. Oh. It's uh, just an amazing thing. But, you know, just super talented. What can I say about New Jersey? Frank Sinatra, The Sopranos. You know, <laughs> what else can we give to the world? Hey, shaping the 20th and 21st <laughs> century for sure. Um, but that's great. And, and it sounds like he truly had to be a great actor. Uh, given how he was, he was naturally geared, perhaps. Um, okay, so we could probably talk um, I don't know, all kinds of things for a couple hours here, Lynn. But but I know our listeners are looking forward to your procurement and supply chain and global business expertise and perspective. So I want to start taking a a step in that in in that direction. So I want to start with one of our favorite questions here, especially given the last couple of years where we have, gosh, had some some days. I bet I've had a dozen eureka moments. So for you, Lynn, what was a career, uh, a key eureka moment in your career, especially one that maybe some of our new supply chain graduates can benefit from their listening? Yeah, you know, I probably um, early in my career, and you have to understand, you know, you didn't really have the vernacular of supply chain until the early to mid 90s. Um, and I was, I think, the first person at Roche to have the title of vice president of supply chain management. So. Um, there was no no real playbook uh, for any of us. We were putting in these, you know, big enterprise planning systems, and then we had to, you know, find ways to be productive. But probably for me, what I found the big eureka moment. I think it's important for a lot of young people who go into supply chain, is really about um, understanding the priorities of the organization, so that your work is is very much aligned with where the organization wants to go. Um, 
And, you know, in that first big assignment, uh, I found an organization that was, when I took over, uh, stretched and really not executing very well. Uh, and one of the one of the things I tried to do is really understand how people were spending their day, you know, a day in the life type of experience. And what I found that the organization, I did an inventory, there were over 200 active projects going on. Um, and so I started to ask the three why questions, like, why are we doing this project? Why is it important to the business? Why are you spending a lot of time on this? And uh, and found through that whole experience, when you looked at dimensions like sponsorship, allowment to the big strategy, really understanding what was happening outside the factory floor, that we really should have only been working on 80 projects as opposed to over 200. And so uh, that, you know, that took a little bit of courage because I had to go to many senior level executives uh, and challenge why they were using the company resources on projects that uh, really weren't uh, going to make a difference in our strategy. So I think for me, um, when when it all comes down to excellence and execution, you know, just make sure that you're not overcomplicating it, that you really understand the priorities, you're validating those priorities, and that you see your role as really being at a, a role that adds value to what's trying to be accomplished. Very easily, especially in large organizations, you can co be caught up in the complexity and uh, and not really be uh, in a in a position uh, to be making a difference. So good, a lot of goodness there. You know, the power of the fo power of focus is one of the things I heard there as well. Um, Kelly, this is almost a, a wonderful segue into one of your next questions for Lynn, right? It is. And first of all, Lynn, we congratulate you on your recent retirement. Um, so as you reflect back on your career and all the different leadership positions that you had the opportunity to hold, what was one that really impacted not just your career trajectory, but also potentially your worldview? Yeah, that's a great question, Kelly. I think, you know, for me, um, having been in the pharmaceutical business and having, um, you know, been in a leadership role during 9-11, uh, and you can understand we, in terms of where I was based, was only about three or four miles from uh, the island of Manhattan, so we could see what was happening there. And and coming out of 9-11, you know, what we recognized was there was a lot of vulnerability um, in, in many of our supply chain uh, practices, uh, specifically with pharmaceutical products. Um, and so I left the manufacturer assignment uh, to really understand what happened to product once it left our distribution sites um, and took over supply chain responsibilities for a company called Amerisource Bergen. And, and what I found was there was a lot of risk in the pharmaceutical supply chain. It operated in a very strange way for, for many, many years because it was a, a growing business. It, it operated in a, in a mindset of buy and hold where companies or distributors were buying product um, and waiting for price increases and then obviously making profit through the price increase. But that led to multiple distributors being around and the inability to really follow the pedigree of product from source of manufacture uh, to, to source of dispense. So literally, uh, it, I uh, took on the responsibility of, of changing the way products are distributed in, in the United States uh, and negotiated directly with every company that manufactured a product that was distributed in the United States. And we eliminated um, all of the secondary distributors that were uh, available. And what we put in place was a supply chain that 
could follow the pedigree of the product from the manufacturing floor right to the point of dispense. And I found great collaboration. It was, I believe, over 350 manufacturers. You know, could you talk about exclusive drugs and generic drugs? We found that it created uh, greater collaboration because data could be shared now uh, in a more real-time way. Uh, and that helped with shortages and being able to move inventory to where it was needed. You know, you get into seasons like cold and flu and so on, and it becomes very difficult to know where inventory is, or even sometimes there's risk with oncology drugs and being able to get them uh, to where they were needed. So what I found in that assignment was uh, an incredible level of collaboration by some very big players. You're talking about a $400 billion industry with a commitment to putting in place a supply chain that was safe, efficient, and effective. Uh, and for me, uh, when I initially took on that assignment, it felt like a pretty daunting task. You know, how am I going to convince all of these manufacturers? My board really challenged me. They didn't believe that uh, the companies would cooperate because it was a little bit of a, of a difficult relationship between the manufacturers yeah. and the distributors at the time. Um, but when you can accomplish something like that with uh, a common purpose, with uh, mutual objectives for success, with uh, transparency and trust, uh, you can make you can make big things happen. And it, it gave me the confidence that uh, you know supply chain could be more than just getting the the product oh, into absolutely. the customers and the patients' hand. Absolutely, you know, and it's interesting because you mentioned what you learned during 9-11, it actually doesn't sound all that different from what many companies and industries and professional learned during COVID-19. And so as much as these events uh, become landmark moments and, and we certainly worry about the greater impact, uh, they do have a way of focusing us on things like traceability and, and visibility. Um, that's it's incredibly interesting. It's funny, Scott, for all the conversations we have with people about how did COVID and the pandemic affect the way you see the world, do your job. Uh, it's it's been a while since anybody's mentioned 9-11. And absolutely, I can see where that impacted the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. Well said. Well said. Uh, and provenance, of course, one of yes. Greg White's favorite words of all time. <laughs> um but um, I, I really appreciate your reflections already. Um, you know, a lot of this came out in the pre-show, uh, Kelly. We, I think you and I both left. Okay, we're going to package up like a seven-part series with Lynn because there's so much goodness in, in his journey. And, and um, also how you, you were changing and challenging how supply chain was done earlier in your career, Lynn. I think if our listeners can really already with what you shared, if they if – they, um, uh, grasp one thing is that ask those, it, as you call it, the three whys, ask those questions, challenge mm -hmm. assumptions, you know, don't, you know, carry the banner of the status quo because there's always a better way of doing things. So, Kelly, that, it's good stuff. I need my popcorn and my Diet Coke already, huh? <laughs> well, good, because I'm going to do a Dial P takeover mid-interview. <laughs> uh, I would be completely remiss if we had Len here and I didn't ask him about some of his observations that specifically relate to procurement. Um, Len, I've been in procurement for almost 20 years. I can't believe how much has changed. And when we think about what's changed in the last 20 years, and you look at what's changed in the last two or three, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. So I'd be curious to hear your perspective around maybe what hasn't changed within procurement as well as what has. And certainly, if you have any predictions for the future, we'll take them. 
Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I think the pandemic really had an ability to accelerate the value of procurement. Um, and I think for many companies, the way they worked with their suppliers before the pandemic directly correlated with how well they were, made their way through the pandemic and are making their way through now this this new era, whatever we would like to call this new era. But we are, I believe, in, in an era of significant change and, and transformation. Um, and I think the, the early thoughts around procurement was purely um, uh, around value capture, you know, get, get the best price or get the best cost. And I don't think we've seen people sacrifice quality or anything beyond that. It was just very cost oriented and it was more earnings oriented. Uh, and I think what we've learned uh, through the pandemic is that procurement is really growth oriented, right? The reality is what I've seen in my 40 years is uh, a greater uh, relationship outside of an organization. So companies were very vertical, whether you were in the auto industry or the technology, yes. even in the pharmaceutical industry, you basically did all of your own R&D and you executed all the various steps of your product. Uh, but now everything is really associated with relationships and collaborations in different parts of the world for different markets, from markets to markets. And uh, when you look at the pandemic in our era right now, where things are really operating more in cycles as opposed to continuous flow. So you'll you'll have peaks and valleys uh, and everything seems to be out of phase. You know, everything's out of phase with what's happening to the customer um, and everything's out of phase as it relates to the investor. Um, and, and I think if you have the ability to put your product on your shelf, on the shelf and provide a service and your competitor cannot, you're growing share. And I think that's what people are starting to recognize around the value of procurement. Um, because if you're baking a cake, if one ingredient is missing, you're not baking that cake, right? Yeah. Uh, and as well as we spent a lot of time in the pandemic really concerned and rightly so around the health of our employees. Um, but I know um, during my tenure at Johnson & Johnson through the pandemic, I spent a lot of my time worried about the employees at my suppliers, over 4,000 yes. of them that at least had allowed us to keep making life-saving drugs. Um, and when you have uh, markets that are opening and closing, right, understanding not only the health and safety of your supplier employees, but the relationship with that supplier, not only with you as a customer, but with the government entity, that they're working with, the regulatory environment that they're operating in. So procurement has become significantly more sophisticated. Um, and if you go beyond just a traditional supply chain, I spent a lot of my time in the in the areas like IT support, human resources support, yeah. uh, and ensuring that a lot of our suppliers in those areas as well were up and functioning and able to execute projects that were in the works. So. I think for those organizations and those CEOs um, who see the value of the supplier with an equal importance as they see the value of the customer, they're going to do extremely well um, in this next decade, which puts a lot of pressure on the next generation chief procurement officer. They really need to speak a very different language and they really need to think about the value contribution of their team uh, in this new world where procurement is much more aligned with growth. You'll always have to bring value, but you have to bring value with growth. Absolutely. No, I think that's a terrific point. And certainly we've seen the shift from people ending up in procurement because you got sent there 
to people ending up in procurement because you chose to work there. It's an excellent way to get a sense of how all the different parts of a company and the associated supply chain work together. It, but one it, thing, it's no surprise that procurement and purgatory are so close. They, they sound so much alike, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Seriously, it is hard being the procurement you, person here that. at DIOP. I mean, here at Supply Chain now. Um, procurement is not purgatory. I would just like to point that out. Procurement is a wonderful place to be. Heaven may not begin with a P. I'm, all, yeah, I'm just it's a kidding. silent P. When you when you <laughs> mentioned the folks getting sent to procurement as if like getting sent to detention hall, that's what came to mind. But uh, I know. Hey, you know, we're big fans and we've got uh, procurement and Dial P and Kelly Barner and now Lynn tattooed on our, on our right shoulder. So big fans here. <laughs> Well, and to be fair, one of my very favorite books about procurement, uh, it's called The Procurement Game Plan, describes procurement as like the island of misfit toys from <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> it's where you got sent so that no one ever had to see you again. So we have progressed from that. And you know, I Kelly, did you, did you know that they had to change the ending of that show? I bet you didn't know that. No, so I did I, not know I that. Remember. Was it originally like a Tony Soprano ending and they had <laughs> no, to clean it up uh, a little bit? Similar, but... <laughs> I'm old enough to remember watching it the first time it was on television, if you can imagine that. But the first time that show was on, Santa just flies by the Island of Misfit Toys and leaves them there. And oh. so there was this big uproar oh, that geez. you can't leave the Misfit Toys on the island. So they literally <laughs> had to change the ending, and, and rightly so. So, uh, But you know what? Procurement is more of a destination. I will tell you, Scott, yes. I was at... Uh, I, you know, I have a, a strong affiliation with Rutgers University and helped to start the supply chain department there over 20 years That's ago. That's right. Yeah. And I was at uh, uh, one of the meetings a couple of weeks ago at the supply chain center uh, where we have faculty and business leaders. And many of my uh, supply chain colleagues were complaining to me because many of the young people coming out of the program want to go into procurement as opposed to going into supply chain because of exactly what Kelly was saying, because, you know, for them, it's the ability to look across the entire organization and work with R&D and work with the commercial teams, work with the technology teams, uh, as well as the traditional supply chain. Um, and it really asks them to be better business people by really understanding the relationships and the critical relationships that you have with suppliers across the entire organization. I mean, that's why I spent my first 12 or 13 years as a chief supply officer, but the, the past 12 as a chief procurement officer because spent enough time in plants and warehouses. And I felt that, you know, the supply chain experience was valuable because he understood the complexity of what it really takes to be able to, to provide your product uh, and or service. Uh, but I also felt that if I could influence some of the decisions early in design and evolution, right, with the sensitivity and understanding of what happens during the execution phase, I might be a more valued contributor to the organization and uh, seen a lot of that with the with the dynamic of digital technology. It's really elevated the function. So um, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the Rutgers tie in there because uh, that's something we definitely want to ask you about. But Kelly, uh, before we head into ESG and some getting some uh, Lynn's thoughts there on the regulation, especially given some of the environments um, that Lynn served in your, your uh, question thoughts there. Sure. And you had actually brought up regulation in some of your earlier comments, Len. I mean, certainly we know that pharmaceuticals are a very heavily regulated industry and for good reason, mm -hmm. right? There's human lives and, and health and well-being on the line. 
But how would you say that the presence of that regulation affected the way that the supply chain was managed, the way that procurement activity and supplier relationships were approached? How did regulation come into your day-to-day? It's significant, right? If you look at in the life science business, the regulatory bodies, the multiple regulatory bodies that are associated with the approval of not only your product, but the execution of that product and the management of that product. So that is new. The other piece, though, um, is the world we live in today, right, with the dynamic of the pandemic, climate change, and the geopolitical aspects of it. It's almost as if supply chain is being weaponized. Um, And so now the whole concept of what you can source and where you can source it from or how you can execute has become a significant challenge for all business leaders. And I think, you know, I grew up in the world where we came up with this concept of supply chain. uh, And if one of the links was weak or broken, we found a way to keep it going. But now when multiple links are weak or broken, it's very difficult and very challenged. And so, you know, I'm thinking more about supply hubs as opposed to supply chains only because of the dynamic of the regulatory aspects the local aspects um also the issues of markets opening and closing sources coming and going uh, you just you just can't rely on that abundance being available to you you really have to rely on managing risk and taking the risk out and being more relevant and closer to where the customer is and executing closer to the customer mm-hmm. so um uh, and, and I don't mean this lighthearted fa- uh, in lighthearted fashion, but I just rewatched Dallas Buyers Club, which is a fascinating movie, Oscar-winning <laughs> movie, right? Um, yeah. I can't remember the lead actor, uh, Matthew McConaughey, lost like forty pounds to play the role. Yeah. Talk about dedication, Jared Leto, right? He was yes, yes, yeah, Lynn, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a um, movie buff. And well, talk about <laughs> um, where there is a, a a common theme here is that that creative sourcing to get around all the highly regulated. You think back in the 80s and, and 90s uh, of, of, of the environment, uh, especially related to lethal diseases, and to get around that to find something that works, and then the explosion of popularity. I mean, I, I frankly, and shame on me, I forget, I'd completely forgotten about the movie. So, listeners, check out da- uh, Dallas Buyers Club. It is a gem, and uh, you'll make the connection to kind of this regulatory conversation we're having. Um, okay. So let's talk for a second, um, Kelly and Lynn, about uh, ESG, right? So everybody and their brother and sister knows what that stands for these days, but maybe for two or three folks, it may not. Environmental, social, and governments, right? Uh, A highly important, um, lots of outcomes driven by many initiatives. I think, uh, Kelly, you and I have chatted about how, you know, some companies are still trying to find that business outcomes approach to ESG. Also, the importance of sustainable procurement, right? Alluding to some of your thoughts a minute ago, Lynn. Um, Two-part question here. What's your vision for how companies navigate this space successfully with outcomes? And from what you've seen, what are some of the challenges there to really getting um, you know, powerful ESG programs off the ground with results? Yeah, let me start with the second question first, because... My greatest concern right now is we we live in a world of promises, um, and and it's easy to make a promise twenty or thirty years out when you're probably not going to be in a leadership position to make sure it's executed. And so, 
I think I find it very difficult to really understand some of the promises that are being made around issues like climate change and and, and scope emissions and so on, right? Um, I think because of that, there's, there's no standard, there's no standard of metrics. Um, I think many are challenged with the issue of transparency. So, you know, the early issues now, if you're gonna make a promise, will you keep it and how are you gonna measure your ability um, to do that? Uh, and a lot of it really does fall on, on those of us in the supply chain. Uh, many organizations have been very good and very diligent in managing what's under their roof. So within their four walls, whether it's their uh, their sites, um, uh, they've been able to to use uh, uh, you know a lot of great new technology around regenerative energy and so on. The dilemma becomes when you start to be responsible as an influencer on your suppliers and the ability of your suppliers to maybe embrace some of those practices. And when your suppliers are in all parts of the world. So if you look at countries like China and India, some of their broader commitments to climate are about 30, 40 years out. So it's very difficult as any type of a, a global company as the companies that I've led um, to be able to make promises when you have a number of suppliers and sites in those parts of the world. So I think environment is really going to require a significant level of collaboration and alignment. The one piece where I've seen some uh, and experienced some some great progress um, is, is really in the issue around uh, sustainability and citizenship and really having a positive impact on on society. And, and so I'm a big believer in what I call social impact procurement. Um, and I felt uh, one of the taglines that we had when I was running the uh, procurement at Johnson & Johnson was how do we use our big for good? Right. Um, and in early in my tenure, you know, we were J&J was a great leader in this space, but they had leveled out um, in terms of their uh, percent of spend with diverse suppliers. And so you know, we talked about what is going to allow us to double it. How can we double it? You know, go for a big goal and let's and let's go after it. And, and I think we found two great enablers. You know, one was technology, and we literally uh, partnered uh, with SAP and created what we called uh, the the uh, diverse marketplace, buy diverse marketplace, right? So you could actually go in and buy from diverse suppliers. But the big change was to engage the entire JJ community around the world, the budget owners, because in reality, procurement doesn't own any budget. They're a facilitator, they create an environment, they're an enabler. So how do we enable the budget owners who want to have a positive impact to participate in the process? And it was about education, but most importantly, we had to take friction out. To take friction out of those diverse suppliers, being able to become approved in a company like Johnson Johnson, which could, which could be a nightmare. So we had to take that friction out. And we had to take the friction out from the budget owners who wanted to work with diverse suppliers. Uh, and the reality is, we had to kill a perception, a perception that working with a diverse supplier was going to have uh, an impact on cost or quality. The reality was many of these diverse suppliers were local, they were innovative, and they knew our customers better than we did. And so what we found we learned so much from these diverse suppliers. And more importantly, during the pandemic, when markets were opening and closing, since we had the ability to do this in, in dozens of countries around the world, our ability to source more locally with many diverse suppliers allowed us to continue to provide goods and services. And I think that was very eye-opening to the broader organization. So I think the ability to use your budget owners 
to have a positive impact in a world that's looking for more purposeful organizations and wanting to be part of a purposeful organization is going to allow you to to win big in the talent space because talent wants to be part of the solution and they want to work with organizations that want to be part of the solution as it relates to ESG. Lynn, oh man, okay. I had a lot of passion for this one. I, well, if I could do this for another 30, if I can help companies really be better in their ESG practices, then I'm living the dream relative to this next chapter in my life. And you know that, um, Kelly, uh, that is honest and genuine. We saw that in a pre-show when we were off camera. Clearly, that is a passion of yours. And Lynn, we need, I think global industry needs that by the truckload, no pun intended. Um, all right, so Kelly, really quick, I'm, we're going to dive in a little deeper to supplier diversity, who Lynn touched on a second ago. But what you hear there? What What do you? What should our listeners really, you know, focus in on what Lynn just shared? I think the most important thing that Lynn pointed out is this idea of making a promise, because that's the easy part, right? You make the promise, but who is ultimately going to carry that out? Who's going to be held accountable? What resources are they going to be given to deliver against that promise? Because even as you had mentioned around sort of supply chain risk and visibility, Len, historically that's all been viewed as very internal. How sustainable is our facility? How diverse is our workforce? And so those could be internal promises. But now with the potential of the larger ESG concept, we're talking about making external promises, which means that there's real downside to not being able to deliver. Mm. And so taking the vision around something, whether it's sustainability, worker safety, supplier diversity, any of those things, and operationalizing them at scale, that's the hard part. And that's where you really do have to really, Len, almost go back and answer all of those why questions that you talked about earlier. But make sure everyone in the organization understands and has bought in because it's not something that one person or one team can execute on their own. It's sort of a whole company-wide effort. Love that, awesome. Kelly. Man, y'all two got me ready to run through the wall back behind me. Y'all really, uh, you're bringing it here today. Um, so, Lynn, you touched on supplier diversity, you know, uh, an area of uh, um, big interest uh, for Kelly and I and our team here. And thankfully, the industry, right? We're starting to see some some really important results-oriented supplier diversity programs, for like, especially in the last few years. Um your thoughts as you've seen that space evolve, uh, both from a C CPG standpoint and pharmaceutical standpoint. What are, what are whether whether you want to, um, you know, lift up maybe some uh, of what you've seen really effective leadership embrace, and and so that uh, it's helped those programs be more successful. Or what's one mistake maybe time and time again you see organizations making when it comes to well intentioned but uh, non results producing supply diversity. Yeah, let's, well, let's start with the life sciences. Let's talk about what we just experienced with the, the pandemic, right? I think in the United States, the biggest impact was on the black and brown community um, as it relates to, um, you know, just, just the severity of, and the tragedy um, of the pandemic here in the States. And, you know, one of the areas when uh, you know, we were involved as well as uh, others in, in creating and, and introducing a vaccine, uh, for COVID. And one of the things we wanted to do was to make sure that the clinical trial associated with it was diverse and, and actually ended up being one of the most diverse clinical trials um, in the history of the industry. Uh, and working with a critical supplier was how do you go and recruit 
in those communities where there was a lack of trust and a lack of alignment. Um, and so we, we really use not only the recruiting, but we also use some uh, wonderful people on the public relations side who really stood out in front to be able to do that. So, you know, using diverse suppliers to engage that community to participate in something that was life-saving during, you know, you know, we're talking about the greatest healthcare crisis of our lifetime. I think on the CPG side, uh, what we're finding is what I had mentioned earlier. I think you have to use your diverse suppliers in more strategic and, uh, and in areas where maybe their voice and the voice of the communities that they represent haven't been heard. Um, and so when you're talking about areas on the commercial space um, and the connecting with those communities, as well as in the product development and product execution phase. Uh, and I learned this great lesson when I was chief procurement officer at Estee Lauder, right? They, so, you know, what do I know about makeup and skincare, you know? I can tell you about fish soup, but I don't know much about you know, <laughs> eyeliner or anything don't like that. Don't put it on your face. The fish soup. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an incredible environment to work in because over 70% of our community were women and the amazing insights and the understanding, you know, for someone who had to source innovation, execute innovation and understand the experience of the customer. Right, not just the use of the product, but the overall experience. And I think as organizations recognize the value, the innovative insights associated with women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, um, it's incredible. And you know, one area, if I if I could, uh, that was important to me and continues to be important to me was I was the executive sponsor at Johnson and Johnson for the second largest employee resource group, and that was the Alliance for Diverse Abilities. Um, and really, this you know this included uh, you know visible disabilities, mental health, and, and neurodiversity. Uh, and there's a great article in the New York Times today about how the pandemic and these more flexible work environments are allowing more of that diverse community uh, to uh, contribute and to be part of organizations. And I think that's another voice that needs to be heard when we're talking about uh, diverse suppliers and minority groups. Uh, and I hope that's a sustainable practice. Um, there's just uh, an incredible wealth of talent and insights um, and companies and corporations have to become much more flexible in how they allow people to be productive um, because I believe that isn't going to change. And, uh, and that's a community that really is talented and has tremendous insights. All right, so Kelly, I know you're chomping at a bit and passionate about this topic. Uh, your thoughts, and then we'll roll right into uh, one of your next questions. Well, I do think that the importance of of work groups, I mean, a relatively new concept, especially for a lot of sort of mid-sized companies that don't have the, the scope and scale of the workforce that J&J does. Um, I think it's nice because it gives people an opportunity that if they don't happen to sit in procurement, but they have a passion for sustainability or diversity. It gives them an opportunity to get involved. And I think that's a, a huge resource that truthfully, I consider it a, a reminder. If you're in procurement, if you're a supplier diversity manager, go find this work group. If there isn't one, help start it. It's an enormous sort of out of band resource or opportunity to connect with people that can help you get your day job done. So I think that's a, a great turn and it's one that's that much more successful because so many workplaces have gone virtual and you can have those personal connections regardless of where you happen to sit geographically. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the past decade or two with technology 
and being very focused on the customer experience. And um, yeah, here's a shameless plug. I just had a, a paper published in uh, Supply Chain um, Review Magazine around the fact that I believe we're at an, we're at an era now where we've been in a little bit of an imbalance. We haven't really thought about the employee right experience and the supplier experience. And so if we can rebalance that around how do we align uh, mutual goals um, and ensure that we're creating an environment that allows people to be most successful. And to your point, Kelly, you know, I think the issue there is uh, more customization around what's beneficial to the employee that allows them to be the most productive. And I think the same thing with the supplier as well. As we've become customer oriented, the reality is we most organizations can't execute anything without the supplier. So how, how do we find that balance? Yeah. And that's actually a great point because those supplier relationships were a huge part of what was tested operationally during the pandemic. I mean, it's something that procurement has always been focused on. Most organizations strive to be a customer of choice. Uh, some surprises were had during the pandemic. We found out, oh, I thought I was such a great customer. Not so much. You know, my right. suppliers weren't necessarily there on the same level of relationship as, as I thought we were in. Any advice or lessons learned around that sort of supplier relationship, um, partnership type of experience from the last couple of years? Yeah, Kelly, you know, I think for us, um, we spend a lot of time as leaders and organizations with a focus on managing people. Um, and if you look at a lot of the studies, they'll tell you that 20% of your team does 80% of the work. And most organizations, 20% of your suppliers represent 80%. And, and I think, you know, understanding who those suppliers are and understanding that relationship is important. But I also believe that supplier relationship management isn't just the purview of the procurement function. I think just as the HR organization is an enabler for people to be good people leaders, I think the responsibility of the procurement organization is to teach the broader organization, the budget owner, to be good supplier relationship management leaders, right? In, in making sure they're collaborating, they're aligned, they're working for common goals. Uh, because when you deal with the environment we're dealing with today, and if we either are in a recession or on the threshold of a recession, those organizations that have a vulnerable uh, balance sheets are really going to be hurt through all of this. And so now execution has to improve. And the only way execution can improve is if you're getting the most value and the most productivity from all of your resources. And many times, you know, organizations are vulnerable if their suppliers aren't executing to their level and their need, whether it's an IT deployment, whether it's a recruiting process, whether it's an agency working on your commercial strategies. I'm talking outside of our traditional product execution there as well. And I'm thinking about the broader organization. And, and so you know, how, how does procurement become the tide that lifts all boats? How do you become great leaders, great advisors, great partners to help your internal budget owners be better external? Mm. Right. And that's, oh, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. Uh, no, you're, you're going to make a, <laughs> uh, a well-founded and inspiring <laughs> remark, and mine was going to be a little more on the humor side. So please, Kelly, what would you hear? <laughs> what did you hear Lynn say there? Well, it's interesting because you're talking about sort of the connection between what procurement is capable of generating with partners outside the organization and connecting that to the types of relationships that we want to have inside. Um, and, and again, you talked about customer experience. 
that idea extending into procurement as the procurement experience and what sort of not just value do we provide for budget owners and distributed users, but what is it like for them to work with procurement? Um, certainly, if if I had a dollar lend for everybody, every time someone asked me, I can't it just be like Amazon, right? I mean, I know people in supply chain are constantly hearing that. We get it in procurement too. Why can't it be like I order things at home and they magically show up the next day? Um, I think we've made progress, but we're maybe not there. Um, any any perspective or thoughts on either what the idea of a procurement experience means or what we can invest to improve it? Yeah, and I had a really good experience on my um, my last assignment with Johnson and Johnson. We literally put in a, a global procurement system of over sixty countries, and this is on the the non direct side. And what we saw through the evolution of that deployment was that you need to take friction out of the process, right? And you need to make it in, in a way that it becomes very easy for the budget owner um, and, and actually present the world to them through the computer. Because that's basically what Amazon is. You're presenting the world of markets to me through the computer. Um, and we were fortunate um, and maybe a little bit ahead of our time because we had a lot of it in place before the pandemic. Now, So now think about the fact that you've got 140,000 employees around the world. You're making life-saving drugs that you need to keep keep going and it's not just the idea of getting you know the raw materials and consumables to the plants you also need to keep your functions running while they're working from home um, and running right because a lot of your suppliers are helping the, the technology wise keeping it operating and running and and so because we had that ability at the fingertips of all of our employees around the world to be able to buy what they needed from home, we really focused on, on that experience. And we saw a tremendous uptake. We're talking about close to 90% use of preferred suppliers. With that journey, we went, we, we cut our supplier base in half. We our cycle times from uh buy, from the idea to buy to buying were cut in half. Uh, and also we we embedded capabilities um, into the budget owners as well. So we automated things like RFPs with approved suppliers. Um, and our net promoter score right before I was leaving was approaching, you know, 80%, which is unheard of for any kind of procurement experience. But we were able to get there only because we took a continuous improvement mindset. We listened to the budget owners. We understood where their pain points were. And we worked very closely with functions like legal to create multiple channels of buying. So we don't buy just one way. You know, you have to look at risk in a two dimensional way, right? The higher the risk, maybe the more complex my process should be. The lesser the risk, the less uh, complex my process should be. So we had a lot of easy pass type of buying. And so basically it was kind of trying to create an experience for the budget owner where it was convenient and easy for them to source and to know who to source from. So all the work behind the screen was understanding the markets, understanding those suppliers that brought the best value to the company, introducing diverse suppliers into that community, um, and actually being a problem solver. So the phone call from pro to procurement was not so much, I need to get a PO done or I need to get a supplier paid for, is I've got a problem. Can you help me solve that problem? And that's that's really jumping the curve uh, around credibility. It's also asking your procurement people to have a whole different set of competencies and skills, right? Better storytellers, better influencers, um, and better understanding of the business challenge with excellent procurement skills. 
Yes, more sugar than vinegar also. Uh, with <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that helps. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I, I love how uh, you, know, you mentioned earlier, uh, Kelly, Lynn used this phrase, how do we use our big for good? And you're kind of using it kind of outside the four walls in terms of, you know, driving good change, you know, across the globe. But I think you, from what you just described there, you're also using your big for good in terms of the supplier experience, the procurement experience, mm-hmm. and probably developing, what I heard, developing relationships where the suppliers wanted to do business with J&J. And that, as we've all seen, has served organizations really well in light of the last, you know, two, two and a half years. Um, one, one last thing I was going to share. You're going way back, uh, Lynn, you shared... Uh, you know, 80, 20, and 20, 80 in terms of 20% of the folks to 80%. You know, somewhere, Vilfredo Pareto is smiling down, <laughs> very proud that uh, his right. principle is still relevant. So, the listeners, sure if you hadn't heard of the Pareto principle, make sure you uh, Google that. Um, okay. So, Kelly, um, uh, the PX, the procurement experience, the CX, customer experience, the SX, the supplier experience, you name it, all these these X's are so prevalent in the industry today. You know, your final thought before we make make sure folks know how to connect with Lynn and, and we're gonna mention Dial P as well. Uh, your final thought or question for Lynn in that regard. I think what I would say, and and Len, this has been such an affirming conversation for me because I advocate on procurement all the time. I believe so much in the value that we bring, uh, but not everybody has experienced big procurement doing good internally and externally. And so I'm thrilled that we've captured your story. We've talked a lot about TV shows and movies. uh, And I think one line that comes to mind for me from one of my very favorite movies, The Greatest Showman, is I will just say to you, if you have not seen procurement lately, you have not seen procurement. So give us another look. (laughs) (laughs) I completely. Oh, Lynn, are you a big fan? I'm, I'm a huge fan of The Greatest Showman. Lynn, do you like that movie as well? You know, I, that's one of them I think I saw once, but uh, that's with you, Jackman. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to go back and watch it. Okay. Again. I apologize. There's your homework assignment from today's yeah, conversation. Perfect. I have a little <laughs> bit more time now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I find that invigorating and inspiring. And, and, and I'm sure folks from all journeys and all walks of life can find, you know, its relevance in their, um, in their own journey. But from an entrepreneurial standpoint, man, mm-hmm. it speaks volumes, even mm-hmm. if they did. Lynn and, and Kelly perhaps dramatize uh, the source material, but still a great movie, great songs. Okay, who knows? I'll, I'll leave that to the, uh, the historians out there. But um, Lynn, I'll tell you, Kelly, as I as our hunch was, there's no way we could do Lynn's perspective and expertise and and journey in like you know a 60 minute episode. So we'll have to have Lynn back. Um, in particular, uh, Lynn, I love your passion along the lines of really making it a better, more inclusive, more successful environment for all parties. So we'll have to do a check-in on that um, as you you roll into your next uh, board seats or initiatives or you name it. But how can folks, whether they want to bring in and have a keynote or if they want to, you know, uh, uh, talk shop on the back of a bar napkin at one of your favorite Frank Sinatra's legendary restaurants, whatever the case (laughs) may be, how can folks connect with you, Lynn? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best bet, Scott. So I'm, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'll always be able to uh, to message back, and uh, we can take it from there. So I, I really encourage people to use LinkedIn. I think it's a great tool, and I, I wish more people would use it. Uh, agreed. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, Kelly, 
uh, any of our students at Rutgers University, um, this has got to make you very proud, right? So uh, connect with Lynn, know know your roots and, and know maybe some of those forebears that help create the structure and the programming for what we all enjoy, especially that now generation that's making such a big impact before they even graduate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with their undergra- undergraduate. Um, Kelly, uh, two quick questions as we still have Lynn here. We're going to talk about it as if he's not with us. Your favorite thing <laughs> that Lynn shared here today, yeah. right? And then number two, let's make sure folks know where to get, you, you know, I was just picking on, I was just in all good fun on procurement a second ago. Uh, oh, you know, I know, because you know if you meant big, it, I would be on the way down there <laughs> to Atlanta. No. He's going to break my legs, Lynn. Um, so <laughs> but I do it nice. What's your... Uh, what's We're going to send Polly Walnuts after you. Oh, oh there you go. It's going to get uh, challenging here. What? Uh, so Kelly, what's your favorite thing Lynn shared? And then where can folks uh, find Dial P and what's coming up next? So my favorite thing, one of those P words, it's back to the promise. Every single person in every single company is making a promise to somebody, possibly multiple somebodies. Your responsibility then becomes finding a way to keep that promise sustainably at scale. And all of our promises are different, but they are all equally important. So I think for me, that's a huge takeaway. Um, if you want to join me in land and revel in the wonderfulness of procurement, uh, you can find me personally on LinkedIn, but I would also recommend that you find Dial P. There's a new episode every single Thursday. We go between solo pods on important topics to video interviews and live streams. So check us out on LinkedIn, on Supply Chain Now, on Twitter, and get involved in the conversation. I love that. And after you connect with Linda Candy on LinkedIn, find the procurement buzz on LinkedIn. That is required reading. So y'all check that out. Um, thank you, Kelly. Lynn, thank you. Uh, Kelly and I, we're looking forward to today's conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with our global ecosystem. I think they're going to have their own key takeaways. I mean, it's hard not to have a litany of things and sitting, you know, spending an hour with you, Lynn. I've got about uh, 17 pages of notes on my end. Uh, but Lynn, thank you for the for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing today and thank you already for for how you can continue giving back and giving forward as we call it here at supply chain now big thanks uh, for your hour spent with us lynn well thank you scott thank you kelly it was a real pleasure and uh, i appreciate what you're doing for the the various functions and for the science of supply chain and procurement uh, it's important work it's meaningful work and i really encourage many young people to to pursue a career in this area mm, well said man all right, we've been talking with Lynn DeCandia, recently retired Chief Procurement Officer of Johnson Johnson, and then a whole lot more. As as you, if you've been listening to us last hour, you know what I'm talking about. Um, big thanks, Lynn. Big thanks, to you, Kelly. Kelly Barner, always a pleasure to knock out these conversations with you. I tell you, this is a good one, huh? I was glad to be here for it. Absolutely, it was a great one. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for being with us on this journey uh, as we sit down with movers and shakers like Kelly and Lynn. Uh, I'll tell you, so much to learn here. Um, but whatever you do, uh, as Lynn and Kelly both are speaking to, it's all about deeds, not words, right? Taking that action to drive change, meaningful change within your four walls and certainly outside of your four walls. On that note, we challenge you on behalf of our entire supply chain, uh, supply chain now team to do good, to give forward, and to be the change that's needed. And with that said, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. 
Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Thank you.